0: Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking.
1: Well, hello, Tom. I have to pause there for a second after the count-in. It's, it's a thing now. So.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I was scrambling for the record button a few times ago. <laughs> Hi Ross, I'm doing great. How are you doing?
1: I'm fine. I'm fine. My editor also says there's not enough space between the one and the hello tom. And so like it's really hard to find that line. So I have Ah. to pause. It's you know, it's an important thing. (laughs) So So no new pictures, no new plants, nothing going on in your office. Everything looks exactly like it always does. That's
2: yeah, that's that's my life. Although I was oh, thinking yeah. of getting a getting a bookshelf to put back there and put all oh, my books
1: on. Oh, see that would make a change. Then you can move the books around. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then, <laughs> then it, that would make it different. Yeah. And today we are joined by Scott Robin? Robin? I don't know how to say Robin. Robin. Like on. Okay, yep. awesome. Great. That's great. I mean, I'm terrible at this. So, and Scott is at the beach. Which beach?
3: Uh, Sandbridge, south of Virginia Beach, on the okay. beautiful east coast
1: of the U.S. All right, cool, cool. So north of the Outer Banks, it sounds like, perhaps. It's
3: the same land formation as the Outer Banks. There just happens to be this arbitrary uh, state line between, uh, uh,
1: okay. between the top right, of it. That so, makes sense.
3: And it's easier to get to than, uh, than the Outer Banks from where I live in Virginia. So.
1: Okay, cool. And we have Chris Gruderman, right?
0: Yes, Grundemann.
1: Grundemann. Or I'm probably yes. saying it wrong, too.
0: I mean, if you ask my German <laughs> ancestors, they'd probably say it far, far differently than I do. So yeah, who knows? that's right. Yeah,
1: that's okay. That's cool. And where are you, Chris?
0: Uh, I am in El Paso, Texas. I'm home this week. Uh, oh, I just okay. got home. Uh, I was with my son in Tokyo last week for his 21st birthday.
1: Oh, wow. That's really uh, cool. Good. Yeah, that's great. And you have a whiteboard, man. I've been thinking about buying a whiteboard. I mean, it's like kind of crazy having a whiteboard. I should have get a big one and stick it someplace.
0: I like it. I, I jump up there and draw. I'm very visual though when I think, so it's it's helpful to me to kind of map stuff out and yeah.
1: Yeah, no, it's good. It's good, and it's like set up in the camera so you can actually bring it up close to the camera.
0: You could. Yep. <laughs> I don't know if you could actually read it uh, across the camera or not, but uh, theoretically, it's possible. That's that's, that's really cool.
1: So, okay, today we're talking about network automation, which is a big topic, and so it's very hard to know actually where to start, other than perhaps the importance of network automation. And, you know, for me, network automation is always about consistency and security and stuff like that, but maybe Chris or Scott have a different, like, or more involved, detailed take than I might.
0: I mean, I can definitely jump in there a little bit, you know, I think... I think one thing is network automation is, is another of those things like maybe like the edge or or even like cloud that that maybe means different things to different people um, and, and has evolved in its meaning over time. Um, my interaction with networks has almost always been mediated by some form of software and scripting. Um, so to me, like networking and automation have have almost always just gone together. right? The, the first uh, Internet service provider I helped build was a wireless ISP. Uh, up in Colorado and kind of underserved areas before DSL and cable had penetrated out further away from Denver. And we built it on the cheap and we actually built it by taking, you know, the the core routers were actually Linux servers that were, you know, we were running a bunch of Perl scripts to set up IP tables, to set up NAT and and static routes and things like that on boot. So we kind of built our own routing OS. It was, it was very janky and I wouldn't call it, you know, a full routing OS at all. Like it was, was not on par with anything else, but but, but, you know, it was be- kind of before Quagga and Zebra and all that stuff came out. So we just kind of did what we could. Um, and, and moving on through time, right? When I was working at uh, TW Telecom, we, or Time Warner Telecom at the time, I guess, we, uh, you know, came in and, and and wrote, again, same thing, right? Perl and Bash and shell scripts. We We didn't really do any network maintenance without a script, right? We didn't actually go and change the configuration on, you know, a couple hundred routers by hand. We would stage it all ahead of time with a script. You know, it wasn't something that was a program by any major, it wasn't something that would be um, used over and over again for the future or be maintained, but it was something we would write, you know, for that maintenance to to use. Um, And in my opinion, I think when automation really kind of captured more people's attention outside of maybe the service writer community or or a small group of folks that were working on really big networks was around, I guess, what 2012 when um, OpenFlow kind of hit the scene and, and everybody started talking about SDN. And at least in my opinion, People didn't care as much about control plane separation and data plane separation and like the ability to be able to you know write new protocols on the fly in, in the network which is a lot of what openflow promised they actually just wanted network automation um even even though we started calling it SDN right and, and I think it's kind of snowballed since then but you know that's one of the things that was pivotal for Scott and I is even since then right in the last 10 11 years, network automation hasn't gone that much further. I mean, it's definitely progressed, but not in the way that I thought it would for sure, and I think collectively as as a community, it's not not really progressed the way we thought it would. I just um presented the results of a network automation, the state of network automation survey um at at the last NANOG, and the 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 kind of headline there, not statistically relevant, but the headline of the of the survey was about 40% of our networks are automated. Uh and of course, I think a lot of people who haven't automated anything self-selected out and didn't answer the survey. So that may even be a rosier picture than, than it is. Um, so, you know, so, you know, so, so as far as, you know, the importance of automation and all that, we can talk about more about, but I think that's kind of at least my history of how we've gotten to here.
1: It's interesting. So you kind of worked on SDN-ish stuff before SDN. And, and I would say that SDN, the other effort behind SDN, it's interesting that you bring it up because I'm talking about SDN a bit at work right now as well is that SDN, we're forever trying to find a way to do traffic steering and traffic engineering in a way that's easier than what we're doing it today. This is like a continuous quest in the networking world. How do I do traffic engineering? And I do it in a simple way. Well, it's not an easy problem. So there's not going to be a simple solution. Sorry, I I don't have one. But, you know, like even going back to MPLS and tag routing and all that other stuff and back to ATM, all of those things are like traffic engineering. And I think you're right. To some degree, OpenFlow started as a way to automate the network, but automate it towards the specific end of doing traffic engineering. And, you know, we've still never gotten there, really.
3: OpenFlow was a was an interesting experiment, um, if you will, like... You know, my bias, I was on the vendor side for a long time, you know, largely at Juniper, but sometimes at Cisco, Nokia, and then another software startup. But, uh, you know, OpenFlow was way too primitive. Um, It was like kind of the assembly language uh, analog um, to a routing protocol. You could put very specific forwarding entries in in forwarding tables, more appropriate for switching than routing, you know, maybe to overgeneralize, but... uh, yeah, you're not wrong. The quest for traffic engineering has uh, all has been with us from uh, the days of ATM, yeah. and there are a lot of folks that argue that uh, you know MPLS brought the complexity of ATM to the IP world. Um, yeah, you know,
1: it's it's yeah, yeah, and I think I think the failure of OpenFlow really was that, as you said, Chris, it's too low level. It's down in the actual It's like basically running P4 today. You're actually programming the switch. And nobody wants to be there from a network automation perspective, right? They want to be at a higher level. Intent-based is almost, in my opinion, a little bit on the other end, right? It's kind of like, oh, I'm not. I'm just going to tell you what I want the network to do, and I'm not actually... It's kind of like maybe there's a bit too much distraction there. Maybe that on the automation side is a little bit too... Um, I'm trading off convenience for effectiveness or... Um, or for, uh, uh, for optimization a little bit too much in that realm, perhaps. Um, and actually, you know, my favorite was I2RS, but then I2RS went down a completely sideways orthogonal path to its original intent. And, you know, but having a standardized interface between the RIB and the routing protocol would have been an absolute boon for network automation, I think, because you could have said, I'm gonna let the dynamic protocol do what it wants to do. That's great, let's just let it do it thing but I'm going to override it here and there with certain right. things. And and that to me would have been a great thing, but we never, I was really
0: there. excited about it for a while, for sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. I, I like I re-
2: the, I run. Re- oh, sorry. I, 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 I like the his, kind of looking at it, looking back at the historical patterns. Um, you can see the pendulum swinging. So you had, uh, you know, open flow and very, very um, imperative uh, touching of the network um, and then swinging way back to a sort of intent based. And I feel like the, the thing we should be shooting for is kind of as the pendulum crosses the middle, uh, grab <laughs> grab the middle. And if we can do that, then we can actually use uh, the benefits of both sides of the pendulum. But I feel like when you're when you're swung way to one side, you're, you're missing and, and the benefits of the other side of the pendulum are kind of not available to you. Just you know, sort of in an intellectual sense, and I, you know, I think we we sometimes we complain about the swinging of the pendulum. We're like, oh, we're back to mainframes. We were doing that twenty years ago. Blah blah. But, you know, <laughs> kind of old man talk. The cloud. The cloud is <laughs> the new mainframe, <laughs> right? Is, you know, right. Yeah. But but I think I guess the point I'm trying to make is as the pendulum swings, if we are if we're paying attention, I think we can use that um, momentum just intellectually to put us in the right place. I I think I2RS is probably a pretty good example of uh, the the swinging of the pendulum and how can we figure out to apply the lessons learned to both sides. And I don't know, I think automation, I think network automation is is well poised to be the center of the swing of the pendulum because it's not extreme in either direction. I don't know if, what, what you if, guys think about it. Yeah,
1: if so, we can get the right interfaces. Sorry, Scott, go ahead.
3: No, so So to, to Chris's point, you know, all the stuff that many of us have done in networking from our beginnings, you know, whenever, it, whenever the beginnings were, uh, early 90s, late 90s, 2000s, it's all about automated mechanisms in the network, right? Is DHCP network automation? You bet it is, right? You know, were you managing IP addresses on a spreadsheet early on? You were, and that didn't scale, right? Um, are routing protocols automation? Absolutely, right? And and our link state protocols an improvement over RIP? Yeah, sure, right? So we've always been trying to find ways to make the network more resilient and free up fingers on keyboard time to do more interesting things. So that's that's nothing new. But uh, as Chris and I got to know each other earlier this year, like I I heard he was doing the network automation survey that he referenced. And uh, I said, that's interesting. I need to I need to get to know this guy. Um, And we had a couple conversations. And, you know, we just kind of, you know, metaphorically looked at each other and said, why isn't the rest of automation in the network taking off faster than it is? And we basically decided, you know, we're both entrepreneurs and we can do something about it. We don't need to ask anybody's permission. Um, so that's why we formed this new this new organization called the Network Automation Forum to ask the questions. What's the problem with the uptake? You know, what's the attenuation? What's the friction? And what can we do to facilitate it um, and to pour some kerosene on it and fan the flame a little bit?
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting because I know that other people have tried to work in this space. A lot of other people have tried to work in this place. The, the whole, the whole, um, what was it? Um, uh, not SRE, but network, network reliability engineer mm-hmm. effort at Juniper when I was at Juniper, um, uh, yeah. was a big part of this as well and trying to teach people to do stuff. Um, but actually I want to back up for a second because Chris, you said your first exposure to networking was through the automation side, which I find very interesting because, of course, I come from the electronic side. I mean, I'm sitting here writing slides for a book I just finished, and I'm talking about modulation and how you modulate signals on Ethernet and how you kill far-end crosstalk and near-end crosstalk and all that kind of stuff. Um, And so I, I find it very fascinating that you started on the automation side, kind of in an SDN world, building a provider. So, I mean, that's just very interesting to me that that's where you came from. How do you see... I mean, do you see the rest of the networking world, like routing protocols and stuff, is kind of like, come on, guys. Like, really? Enough? (laughs) Or you... (laughs) I mean, I'm just curious. I, mean,
0: I, I I think calling what I was doing uh, SDN is is generous, um, <laughs> quite well, generous. But SD,
1: SDN <laughs> but means yes. many things to many people. So <laughs> fair enough.
0: But it was software driven networking, right? I mean, it, it was. Um, and yeah, it, it's definitely been interesting to to see that. And I mean, one, you know, just as a kind of you know a side note, it, it definitely was a weird path in. I think because one, it was, you know, I was building a wireless ISP and two, we built it kind of with, you know, like I said, with our own software and scripts and things. And so then I had to come back in. And when I got into like a real ISP, figuring out, you know, ATM and fiber and and all the, all the stuff that people normally kind of learned first, I had to learn after, uh, which was kind of wild. Uh, I kind of did like an upside down uh, career move thing there. But, But, but yeah, you know, definitely you know, learning, networking, coming from that kind of, you know, building it on Linux servers and, and building it through scripting, one of the big things, and I'm not the first person to ask this question, but it definitely is front of mind for me, is why do the other kind of information technology disciplines have such an easier time with automation, right? Like, like DB, you know, database admins, sysadmins, um, you know, just regular storage folks, just, you know, kind of, you know, across the board. Almost every other practice outside of networking and maybe security um, in kind of the IT space does a lot more automation typically than, than what we do in the network. And that's an interesting question, I think, is, is looking at you know why that is. And, and I think there are some structural reasons for that. Um, but definitely that background kind of led me to that question pretty early on. Um, and, and you can see, right? I mean, part of it is the hardware issue, right? It, it's when you're working with a common x86 platform. Um, it's a lot easier to do automation than when every single device you're touching has a different chip in it, right? That that's you know one piece of it,
1: or a different operating system, and right, and right. every operating system is custom built for a certain thing. And there is, I mean, you know, like Cisco IOS was brilliant when it was was first written, but and partially because we didn't have processors that could do things. I mean, honestly, let's be honest, the first processors we were working with in the in when we were dealing with Cisco IOS were Oh my goodness. Motorola 8088s, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, pre-8088s. I mean, like right. so little processing power, it was crazy. And so, yeah, I mean, I kind of you kind of get that, but yeah, but go ahead. Sorry. I just just occurred to me that
0: No, that was it, I mean, I think I think I think that's really interesting, right? I mean, I think, you know, you know, to your to your point that, you know, my background definitely caused me to ask those questions I think a little bit earlier on yeah. um and and maybe see things a little bit differently. Um which again to you know to Scott's point, that's one of the things we want to kind of circle back around on and 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 figure that out. Like today, are are those constraints still in place, right? These historical things that cause networking to kind of go down a different path, a more manual path in a lot of ways. Um, you know, are, are those constraints still there or is it just in our minds now, right? Well what's actually stopping broader network um deployment? I would say that, you know, I, I like Tom's analogy with you know with the pendulum and kind of looking at that and kind of how to ride that, but I think one of the biggest challenges to automation is actually outside of automation i mean yes the interfaces are needed and maybe we still need better interfaces but the lack of standardization as we were just starting to talk about a little bit right whether it's at the processor and, and fpga level or at the network os level or at the levels above that right everybody designs their network a little bit differently right they're they're not we're not stamping these things out of, of a factory at all uh, and then even once you design it everybody configures it a little bit differently Right, uh, Almost as a point of pride in some cases. In some cases, it's just, hey, this is the way I learned how to do it, so I'm going to do it that way. Right. And other times, it's like, oh, look, I can use fifty five for my gateway instead of dot one." Well, cool, but now your network is less decipherable to everyone else who comes along after you, right?
1: Yeah. And, and part of it, too, is competitive pressure as well. I mean, you know, we tend to think that every delivery vehicle should look the same. Because it just carries boxes, right? That's all it does. It's just a delivery vehicle and every car should look the same and every, you know, whatever, every ship. It's really not that simple. Like you gain some competitive advantage, however slight it is, by building something that's a little bit different. And that's part of the risk and reward part of business, right? If I build this network just a little bit different, I may actually gain a 2% competitive advantage. And 2% doesn't sound like a lot. But 2% compounded over five years or 10 years, plus the other 2% that you do, it, it makes a huge difference. And so, yeah, so we don't build everything's all the same.
3: And there's, a, there's one really clear use case, right? The financial services companies, right? Who, you know, in trading situations know that latency makes a difference. And that goes all the way down to the optical layer of, of the networks they build, right? Because yeah. that gives them a clear competitive advantage. It's not as clear financially in in other verticals but that's that's a really good you know case for that yeah let me let me insert here you know not to stop this conversation but uh, you know we're here talking a lot about a lot of these topics um, and you know as you, you you might be aware right you know we're putting on a conference in November um, November 13th and 14th where we want lots of other input on these issues as well you know the four of us, Um, are not the final word on all of this stuff. And uh, what Chris and I are trying to do, you know, in sponsoring our first event for the Network Automation Forum, Autocon Zero, um, I'll let you speculate on why we started numbering at zero. Um, You know, we're trying to get um, folks together from across the industry, you know, customers, consumers of automation, solution providers, and solution implementers, you know, like professional services firms, that kind of bridge the gap and help uh, help customers implement. Um, we want to get people together and talk about what's working and share share stories, share information about how they've gotten around certain things. So, sorry for the explicit plug um, uh, so early on in the discussion here, but uh, you know we'll keep talking and hopefully it'll generate thoughts and ideas from folks that are listening. And uh, if you want to hear more, or you want to contribute more, you know, please join us in November.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. think that
0: that kind of multi-stakeholderism is, is really important, right? Because, you know, for whatever reason, and Russ, you bring up some good points that I hadn't thought of, right? That, that this competitive advantage idea of, of, you know, having a little bit different network design, trying to push the envelope a little bit, maybe, which is something I want to kind of put a pin in and come back to, because I, I have a friend who has a really interesting theory on some of that. Um but but because of that, right? you know, we really need everybody at the table to move network automation forward, right? I mean, going back to Tom's point, right? We need these interfaces built at the OS level, maybe even at the hardware level. I mean, um, you know, Russ, you made an interesting comparison earlier between openflow and P4. I think it's a good comparison because both of them were kind of rolled out and touted pretty widely, but really they were tools for vendors to build better products. I, I think. Um. Right. It wasn't something that operational folks really needed to pay attention to. Um. And it maybe trips some people up because they were like, "Oh, how do I use this? You know, how do I how do I you know use P four in my network? Well, you don't. Somebody's got to do something with it first, I think. Um. And so the vendors have to be at the table, obviously, right? And then you know, then there's these kind of overlay folks, right? And there, and there's a few vendors out there who are building kind of automation platforms, right, to go over the top and kind of maybe connect those different OSs together and give you this you know management layer. Um, which I think looks something like intent-based networking. I I don't know if those are the right words or not, but, you know, giving this kind of management plane across a heterogeneous network is is really interesting. But then you really do need somebody in the middle tying those two things together. Because right now, because everything's designed and configured differently, even if you have, you know, if if you know all the OSs and all the chips at that kind of automation and orchestration layer, you've got to tie it together because you've got to wade through those abstractions of you know, which VLANs, you know, somebody decided to use or whether they're using OSPF or ISIS or how they decided to configure it, right? And what they're waiting their timers at and and all that stuff, right? Needs to be kind of uh, figured out and and, and drawn together. So I think that's a big thing is, you know, we really need to all be talking together around the same table somewhere um, to to move this stuff forward.
1: Yeah. And, And unfortunately, I think the biggest blocker from my perspective, really, is just the API, which don't have a common API today we don't speak a common language yang tried has tried for years mibs etc cetera, etc cetera. p4 was almost an attempt at the lower layers to do the same thing openflow was an attempt at lower layers to do the same thing but it's just we just like for whatever reason its performance or whatever it is we always end up back to scraping the command line and like that, just really sucks. <laughs> it's yeah. really yeah. right,
3: right. <laughs> yeah. Well, on that on the on the hardware access, right. Um, so you know that's a place where the big iron um, vendors really try to provide competitive advantages over each other, right? Um, you know, Juniper has a history of their ASICs. Nokia has really, you know developed a pretty consistent line through the fp series with fp4 and now fp5 coming out you know cisco's reinvigorating it with silicon one and they're all different processors with different primitives so i i'm not holding my breath for any consistent api for actually programming forwarding asics and and you know broadcom 2 with the jericho 2 and jericho 3 family coming out right. yet another ai Right. Well, right. I mean, about that as an application area, yeah, right? Exactly. So, um, but but you do need that hardware abstraction layer, right? Where that's where you, I think, you have the hope of getting consistency um, across a different line of ASICs. The problem is going to be because of that competitive differentiation. You know, you you might get you might have the lowest common denominator approach. You know, and I'll you know we could talk about. Uh, Netconf, right? Um, you want one, you know, one ring to rule them all. Um, well, that will only be consistent among the things that are common to all the supported platforms, and that kind of vanillaizes things. Um, well, make,
0: yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, I mean I didn't mean to interrupt, but that, that that's kind of a you know the challenge we had with MIBs too, right? And and it was yeah. solved with these kind of provider specific MIBs. Um, sure. Yep. I, I, I don't know that there's a corollary there with Netconf or not. Oh, oh, no,
1: there is. There is. There yeah. is. I mean, you have open config versus the ITF standard config stuff. And that's just, you know, one provider said, we just don't, big provider said, we don't really like the way the ITF is doing it. We're building our own. And now you have two. And now, like, as a maintainer for FR routing, we're always running around going, okay, which one do we support? Okay, you know what we'll do? We'll try to munch the two together and make our own kind of and now so everybody has their own right which is what happens and so yeah so i I think
2: i think because of this so there's multiple there's differentiation happening in multiple layers uh in in the in the market so you have people who make products trying to differentiate between each other and then you have people who consume products to build bigger uh, higher order products like very large providers or whatever they're consuming the stuff They're so they're consuming a highly differentiated landscape uh, and then they have to produce their own differentiation, so they're driving stuff down, like you just described, Russ. So you have both of these things happening, like a common interface. I am pessimistic that it that it will ever happen that we yeah. have one thing where you can always get the uh, you can always get the label table out of a router uh, with this with this API. I don't think it will ever happen. Yeah. And networking is just a very is a very is a very, um, is a very uh, specialized discipline. Forwarding packets is is just not the same. Like to kind of go back to Chris, what you're saying about why haven't we caught on in networking? Um, hosting a database can be done in a platform agnostic manner, forwarding packets cannot ever.
0: Like yeah. we
2: we right. consume ASICs, and so because of that, I don't, I'm not trying to be like a downer, but but I I feel like because of that, the sooner we embrace the poss- the the fact that we have to provide the interface, that we yeah. the people building these networks have to provide the interface. As soon as we uh, accept that and stop complaining about interfaces, I think that's that is one big thing that will get us to, um, yeah. to you know, strong penetration of networking. I don't know this is my theory.
3: Yeah, it's a good point. Well, so there. Let me let me tail on that a little bit you know there's one horrible oversimplification that i kind of like to use for the history of network automation from from Perl to python to platforms right and it's not just linear right but you know chris chris used the Perl word right because that was that was the scripting language for network automation you know back in the day python has gotten greater adoption but there's this fear of Lots of network engineers that I'm not a coder. I didn't take this job to be a coder. I have to learn Python now. Um, and there is there is a level of resistance there that I think it's going to take some fundamental change or or may never be fully overcome. But Tom, to your point, that leaves room for other providers to come and provide automation platforms that have the, the magic word integrations, Right. Um, and I, want, I don't want to get too product focused here, but, you know, in the conversations that Chris and I are having, you know, preparing for Autocon Zero, there's this family of companies that are rising up that have lots of integrations with the visibility vendors, the router vendors that make you not have to be a Python programmer to do automation at scale. Um, I think you're always going to have some role your own with Python. But the platforms um, that are truly multi-vendor—they haven't been um, acquired by you know some of the big network vendors. They they're providing some really interesting um, mortar between the bricks. That's my observation so far. I don't know what you think, Tom.
2: Yeah, I think mortar between the bricks. I like that. That's a great. Yeah, analogy. I, I, I
1: do like that. In fact, and, and that is another challenge beyond the single API. The second challenge, a, a challenge I hear a lot is, I'm I'm a network engineer. I'm not a coder. Right. Why am I learning code? Okay. Well, I have a couple of answers for that. My first answer is always um, learning code is good for you as a person. Eat the frog. Eat your vegetables. Okay. (laughs) Get over it. Broccoli. Yes.
3: Broccoli and not frogs. (laughs) Yes. Whatever it
1: is. (laughs) Whatever it is. I don't care. Might make some people squeamish. (laughs) Just made me. <laughs> you know, come on, people. Like, really? I don't know. I know you're almost literacy at this
0: point, right? It is I mean, yeah, exactly sure.
1: that. That's the thing, right? Is like it. It just you just learn to code. I mean, really. Even if you only well, learn it, Python, just learn. And it.
0: the other thing is, you know, I mean, you know, a CLI is not that far from coding, right? Learning iOS Practical. or learning yes. Junos. Yes. I mean, it's, it's not that big of a bridge to Python, right? I mean, you already are kind of a coder. If, if you're a CLI jockey, if you're really in there pounding away every day, yep. you're writing code, uh, yep. I, I think. I mean, I don't know.
2: So I, I really like, Chris, that you use the word literacy because you, there's a basic level of literacy we all have to have to function in society, right? We got to be able to read street signs. We got to be able to read the price tags at the grocery store. But mm. we don't all have to be able to compose, you know, write a novel. We don't have to be able to read in another language other than our native language, um, and I think the pro- I think part of the problem is that what people see programming, they see it as this big, huge discipline, and I have to learn all of it. And I have right. to. I've been doing this for twenty years, and now I got to start over from zero with all these young kids coming out of college. I don't. I don't. I think people think that's what it is, and that's not what it is. Uh, at least for me, what I found is that if you. If you learn enough programming that you can speak their language, and then if you're fortunate enough to be paired with someone who's a really great developer, mm-hmm. that that synthesis, like that synergy between you and them, I have built. I have built great things uh, in in a pair like that um, that neither of us could have done on our own. Like some of the most yep. satisfying work actually I've ever done in my career has been in that sort of arrangement. But but if you're afraid of it, then you can never approach that relationship. I think
0: right. Well and the other thing I mean the, the one of the secrets of why I mean I I think anyway why Python has taken off so well is the vast amount of libraries available. So so what's wild is you know I mean I I think you're 100% right right if you're sitting next to that person or if you've got that person in your organization or or, or somewhere where like you've got this great developer available to you and you can work with them and you know the language enough to kind of you know get the work done that's amazing. I agree with you. Um but, but you don't even have to have that because that person right uh, has already written a bunch of code that's in a library that you can just call and you can write a really 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 powerful python script in like four lines because you're calling like five other things that people have already built you know ahead of you um which is pretty wild right and so I, I think and that may be something that people don't quite understand uh, if you have if you've never actually gone in and tried it if you haven't actually you know done anything at all in Python, you may not realize that um you don't have to write it all yourself right? a lot of it's already been written a lot of it
1: yeah yeah huh. Although, and I, I, I do think another you know, piece of the coding puzzle that scares people is the process and the workflow. They don't understand. Like, I, okay, honestly, I still struggle with the with Git. I mean, it's so complex <laughs> and there's so much stuff you can do in Git. And like, I look at it sometimes and I'm like, I don't even know where to start. Really guys, I don't even know where to start. And so, and I've been doing coding for a long time. I mean, I've been, I started coding when I was in the, in the mid eighties. In the late 80s, I mean, that's, you know, writing C. I just want to
2: point out to the audience that they didn't already know. Russ is a a maintainer of FRR saying this. So if you don't, (laughs) if you're struggling with Git, you're not, you're in pretty good company. (laughs) Right, right, right.
3: Right.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and so,
3: I mean, Russ, if you hadn't gone there, I, I would have, right? So there's, you know, Chris rightly pointing out, you know, so much has already been done. And if you... If you are drawn to it and you have a you have an ability you know to think like a programmer be a programmer you can do it um i think another layer of the problem um is institutionalizing process and workflow um in a network operations organization um there i I, through this whole conversation i see so many individual contributors who can go and get smart on python and access all the tools that we've talked about out there and, and, and be super literate in Git um, and Terraform, et cetera. Um, but their organizations are relying on them as individuals to fix the network automation problem for them, where there are things that need to be institutionalized. you know, And the, where, where are the first-level managers, the second-level managers and directors that are fighting for making the process baked in um, instead of just hiring somebody with Python skills is going to solve my problem.
0: Hmm. Well, and that that leads to another question, which I think is really interesting. Again, kind of you know to your point, Scott, the, the, there is this kind of business political right. The layer eight, layer nine issues um, that have a big impact here, right? So one is if you're in a, a large enterprise or even a, even a service provider, probably uh, there's these different business units, and and a lot of times they'll each kind of have their own networking team, right? If you're if you're in a big enough organization. Uh, and a lot of times each one is solving this problem differently. And so you'll actually, I, I've come into some companies where I've seen, you know, maybe they're maybe they're all using Python and that's great, but they're definitely doing it in different right. ways. And maybe they're not even all using Python, right? I mean, somebody's using Ansible over here and maybe they've got, you know, for some reason they were connected to a server team, so they're using Puppet over here or they're doing things differently. Um, you know, so you know, even just that consistency kind of across those things. Um, we've talked about this a little bit uh, offline, Scott, this idea of a, a uh, automation advocate right um where you've got maybe like this kind of traffic controller right in inside of an organization that's helping to spread the word right they're a little bit of a missionary and, and going to these d- different groups and saying hey automation will will help your life um but also kind of spreading the the standards and the processes across the organization as well um so I, I don't know Russ and Tom if you've had any experience with with a role like that with, with somebody kind of coming in maybe for automation maybe for something else but having kind of that centralized, um, center of Excellence type of of, of approach uh, to to spreading these things and getting them right.
1: Yeah, but I think part of the problem is is that we're engineers. I mean, I'm just being honest. <laughs> I mean, we don't. We I don't want to like, see where this goes. Yeah, we 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 don't really like taking on those kinds of leadership cross cross organizational cross within the organization types of roles. It's just not in our personality type, unfortunately. And and maybe this is something good that could come out of the conference as well. By the way, this and and the automation forum is getting people to be to realize again, you know, as Mike Bouchon says, they're not soft skills; they're superpowers. Mm. And like you know, don't be afraid. It's okay. You don't need permission to reach out to somebody in the other part of the company to go do right. something. So I think you know one of the questions you asked early on, well, in the list of things we were going to talk about, was like. Where are the leaders? Well, the leaders aren't there because we just don't naturally – we're engineers. We don't gravitate to that. We just don't.
2: There are some organizations that I think have done – I don't think this is the majority by, by any means, but there are some organizations that use the principal engineering role to do this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, where it's not architecture, it's not like sitting with and, and talking about uh, the structure of the business or anything like that. But it's also not like you know operations and making networks run. It's it's more of a technical leadership type of role. I I, I developed one of these roles for myself in one company. I've had it another in, in other companies. I think that that is one way of accomplishing what you're talking about, Chris. Is that their main job is not to make make networks run and make packets move? It's to make sure that the correct ideas. Um, get the you know, get get the right airtime in the organization and that the people it, because there's lots of ideas out there You really need the correct ones including how to properly automate these systems Those are the right. ones that you want because people in general I think are are looking for Especially in large organizations where there's so you had to get hundreds of people on board to do anything significant like it is it is like walking through molasses yeah, like it is. and so the, I think one big key to that is you got to have someone whose job it is to de- to deliver and sort of evangelize uh, the correct ideas, and one of those should be like how to correctly structure network automation systems. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's one way to one way to do it. But but that person, to your point, Russ, it's not just somebody who finds the most satisfaction in building things. They have to be someone who finds yeah, satisfaction right. in transplanting ideas.
1: Um,
0: well, like they would have been a technical marketing engineer, right? But you just focus them internally instead of externally. Yeah, sure.
1: and. Yeah, and- yeah. Part of the problem with that role is that I've discovered across time is that if somebody says this needs to be done and then you say, "Okay, I'll go do it because I'm the leader in that space and nobody else is going to do it. You end up owning the code for the rest of your Mm -hmm. life (laughs) and then you end up being mired in owning pieces of code that you've built across the years in order to solve specific, you know, like. Okay, I can go build the connector between point A and point B. There's this great book called The Soul of a New Machine, which is all about Tracy Kidder. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And it's all about like this one guy who sits there and builds interfaces. Everybody else is off doing their own thing. And that's great. And that's what you want to do. I mean, that's what you need in this space is somebody just to build interfaces and to put people together. But the danger is, is that, you know, you've got to get your leadership on board to say, once I built the interface, somebody else has got to own it. I yeah. I can't well, own all the interfaces. So
3: to Tom's you know bravery and defining that role, um, <laughs> it, it, it's it's, it's I, I yay and amen to everything you said and the sustaining function, and it can't come down to just one person. That's yeah. that's a that's a death wish, right? Yeah. Um, so I will gently challenge Tom and anybody else listening who has a similar idea or a different way of solving a problem, submit a proposal for a talk. Um, unfortunately when this comes out, we may have all our submissions in. But Tom, at least you right now, you're before the deadline, um, I'm serious. You know, that this is the kind of thing that needs to be spread amongst the the people that were you know will will be coming to the event for
0: sure. Also um, to Russia's consternation, learn Git so that you can have other people work on your code. That's
3: right. <laughs> That's right. It's a force multiplier, Russ.
1: So. Uh, Dude, if I, I sure.
3: can learn it, I think we're about the same age. You know, uh, <laughs> no. Fortran, Fortran, and C programming in the mid to late '80s here. So, uh, yeah. uh, I'm
2: I'm I, sorry, Russ. I did not mean to pull you into this. I'm, <laughs> sure, I'm sure
3: Russ knows Git
2: really well. No, actually, actually, I
1: really don't, and I need to go read a book on it because I just haven't spent the time. And part of that, part of that's just time, and that's part of what I run into all the time. People ask me how See, I jump, do something. Jump into- Jump into the deep end of the pool. I mean, it sounds like you already have, right?
3: I mean, the only Git skills I've learned have come from actually doing, right? Not yeah. not reading about it,
0: so. Well, and, and that um, raises another, oh, sorry, go ahead, Scott.
3: No, I'm good. Well,
0: it just, it just raises another interesting point around automation and kind of the, the challenge of getting automation further deployed, I think, which is, I, there's a really good cartoon, I don't know where it originated, uh, I wish I could give credit to to the cartoonist maybe somebody here can but it, it, there's a picture of of two guys really struggling to move this cart and the cart has square wheels so obviously they're struggling right oh, yeah. and then there's a dude behind them that's holding up a round wheel and he's trying to get their attention and they wave him off and they say no no man like leave us alone we're really really busy we don't have time for your stuff right now um and you know to, to to you know to your point russ right you know there it's it's about the time and to your point scott it's about what you're working on and it it, it can it can backfire on you though right because i've definitely used it as you were talking about scott in that if i take on a project that involves something i wanted to learn that's when i learn it right when i actually have to when i know yeah. you know when when i've got to figure it out but what that also means is i can get really down into the cli and be cranking around in 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 the guts of a router and and not look up and say oh you know what i could have solved this by spending you know half the time writing um a a program or a script or something right and so so, you know yeah going back
1: back to tom's idea of a position by the way i learn a lot of stuff by teaching it Mm. because because if i'm going to stand in front of a class i've got to know four times as much as i'm putting on the slides and i got to be able to answer questions So if you take on that part of that role as being, I'm going to explain to people how this works. I'm going to give classes in this. And by the way, this is another permissionless thing. And I I actually don't do enough of this, of of just being permissionless about this, of just saying, I am setting up a video conference next Friday and I'm going to teach a class on whatever it is. I'm just going to go do it, right? I do a lot of teaching outside of work, but I'm just saying, this is something you could do that would actually develop this leadership within the world in which you live to help And it helps other people as well. So like, you know, give a class on Git. I might come.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I want to strongly second what you're saying, Russ. I've done this in almost every job I've worked in just because I don't know, maybe I just like to hear myself talk or something, but like people like there's always somebody who like, I've always had this thought that if I'll invest in this person, then they can take some of the stuff that I'm working on because they might be interested, but they just don't have the skills right now. And so I've always, every place I've, almost every place I've set up the classes you're talking about, Russ, and I've used different methods. Like my current one is a little, a little thing I do every week where it's just like I'm, I'm working on an open source NAS. So the focus of it is how can we break this thing? How can we make it, bring it to its knees and make it malfunction? Um, And that ends up being a super, super awesome way to teach. But then other times I've done it more formally like, okay, we have this thing we have to deploy in the field. Who wants to come learn about it? And there's always at least one. And sometimes if you have a class of you and, and two other people, like some of the best friends I've ever made at work were this yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, I um, bet. Is, for professional development, it is way better than going to some class for a week or, or doing some webinar, like that sort of thing can really catapult. So, yeah, I just want to second I, Don't what be what telling people
1: not to come to my webinars, Tom. <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, well, if they're Russes, go to Russ's. Just don't come to <laughs> <India>. <laughs> about think about some of the terms we're kicking around here literacy education permissionless you know these are all things that fall on management and leadership um and they're not the same thing so you've got to use two different words but you know create an environment where somebody's not going to jump down your throat if you ask what you might think is a stupid question and uh you know shout out to chris's uh podcast the imposter syndrome network right where you know, everybody suffers from a little bit of "I don't belong here," and mm-hmm. uh, I a little is the really... wrong word. I'm
1: sorry, Scott. A little is the wrong word. Yeah,
3: right, right, right. Well, look, you know, my 20 years ago in the juniper TAC, Right. I mean, one of one of the most educational experiences of my career. Um, when you're an instructor, you get to teach how protocols are supposed to work, right? Um, but when you're in a attack role. You see the worst of everything, how things break. Oh, they actually um, work. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I remember being scared to death to send um, questions to support dash private. Um, cause I knew there were escalation engineers that were going to rip me a new one just for, oh uh, why didn't you RTFM? Right. And you know, you can make a difference as a manager and a leader by creating an environment where it's okay to ask questions. Right. Oh, yeah. And it's, you don't have to ask permission to get three or four of you together to start learning Git, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's the same thing in Cisco Tech, by the way. You know, we had these mailing lists. Yeah. And if you if you ask a question, you would get an answer. It would be the answer would be between cuss words and and yeah. and other stuff. But you yeah. would get an answer. So you just had to put on your fire suit and say, I really don't know the answer i'm just gonna like it is what it is
2: (laughs) one of the things i I noticed in in these in these type of environments the classroom environments is i one of my methods i would use with people is i would say okay we need to make the network do this so so go ahead and do it And, and it was something simple enough to do kind of on a whiteboard and at first when i would ask people to do this they would be like uh and i knew that they knew how to do it but they just didn't want to engage because it, this is the other side of that conditioning. The conditioning is I can't ask a question or I can't not know the answer or it's not safe. Um, and then, But one thing I noticed is that I, w- I would encourage them and, and, and finally get them to do it a couple of times. They'd do it wrong and I'd be like, okay, no problem. You're in the wrong direction, but let's go over here. After a couple of those, I would start asking those same people, okay, uh, do this task on the whiteboard or whatever. And they would make mistakes and they accelerated. Their mistakes accelerated them. But the acceleration only happened um, just to, to come back to what you're saying, Scott, the acceleration only happened after people felt like if I make a mistake, I'm not going to get torched for it. Um, once once they knew that it was safe for them to do so, making their mistakes made them smarter really fast. And that's I think that's the thing that we have to uh, create that sort of environment.
0: That's yeah. psychological yep. safety, I think, yeah. from the, the, yes. the common yep. literature anyway. Yep. All right. I mean, so I,
3: 2013, Chris.
0: So. Very. <laughs>